Hey there, you are listening to Underscore, a podcast by the Chicago Graphic Design Club. I am your host, Christian Solorzano, and I am thrilled to be launching this first episode of 2024 with our guest, Charlene King, a designer that is funny, kind, generous, and overall just a great human being. She spoke at the Chicago Graphic Design Club's Confronting Design panel at One Design last year in 2023, and several people came up to me and they just expressed how much they enjoyed her perspective on artificial intelligence and a wide range of different topics. So today's conversation is no exception. With Charlene, we talk about the art of listening, ways to find your voice, generosity, accessibility. She walks us through her introduction into the world of design and art through a security job that she had at a museum here in Chicago. We talk about art school, design school, and the lessons learned along the way. And Charlene shares with us her passion for taxidermy and what that entails and some of the commonalities between that and design. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And as always, thank you so much for listening and for your support. Enjoy. Good morning, Charlene. How's it going? Good. How are you, Christian? Good. Thank you for being on our show. So I want to start this conversation by getting the first question out of the way. It's not design related. Do you still have your 1989 Honda Civic? In my garage right now. That's that's one of the things that I I gathered from uh, looking through your social media is that you're a very, uh, you're a Honda Civic enthusiast. Oh yeah, I love my little shit box. (laughs) Can you talk to us a little bit about your car? Yeah, sure. You know, um, I grew up during that time. I think people just like glom onto the the cars that they grew up around, you know. Um, And so now this car being 30 years old is technically considered vintage, (laughs) which is hilarious to me because, you know, if you watch a lot of TV shows, right, it doesn't matter if it's Criminal Minds or uh, New Girl this is the car that represents poverty. (laughs) Like this is Nick Miller's car, right? The car you see him like asking like five random skateboard kids to help cover up in cardboard is a 1989 maroon Honda Civic. And that's the car I own. But if you watch Criminal Minds or other procedurals where there's a lot of car crashes, this is the car they use when the criminal is driving something recklessly and they need to blow it up. So that's my car. <laughs> so so because it's a vintage car now, does it does it qualify for those vintage license plates that I sometimes it see? It does. I've okay. looked into it. But the problem is, is in order to get one of those licenses, you're not actually allowed to drive the car on the road. Huh, really? Yeah, it's it's a car. You can drive it from show to show, but it's not meant for daily use. So it has different criteria when it comes to things like uh, emissions or, um, you know, just a clean title, what it means to have a clean title for it. Yeah, I had a, a 2003 Honda Civic myself. 
great car. It like just never failed. It made a lot of noises and the windows wouldn't go down. <laughs> and uh, and there's like all these cosmetic issues with it, but it was it was like bulletproof. I mean, that's the thing. You know, I'm a big believer in the buy it once club. Mm-hmm. I don't like buying things repeatedly. So what's the mileage on, on your car? Uh, I would say it's like 120 now, because when I bought it, it was actually under 80. Um, It was someone's grandma's car. And that's why it, it was just in very good condition especially for a car that's in a a snowy part of the country. You know, usually those cars, you see a lot more rust, especially in the undercarriage, you know, and this, this car just had no rust because she kept it in the garage and wouldn't drive it in winter or any bad weather. Always look for the grandma car owners. If you're buying used and vintage. When I was younger, we used to drive in the suburbs and just like, see if there's any cars for sale, like on the front lawns to, like, you know, some, some yeah. elderly person's home. That's the way to do it. They take yeah. very good care of their cars. Yeah. I have so many receipts from all her oil changes. So you and I have something in common and that's that we, well, the first thing is that we both dropped out of high school and I love, not that I in, encourage or endorse dropping out of high school, but I do like to see people that did drop out of high school do well and, you know, succeed and, and have careers and, and just, you know, because um, I feel like there's a stigma to like the high school dropout. Oh, totally. Um, and I, th- I think it's interesting because this this industry especially is um, unique in that you don't need a traditional career or education path to succeed. You know, like, I think there are way more like leaders in our industry that came up designing just like using like Tumblr, um, LiveJournal, MySpace, just random shit. Just by luck of the draw, they were the first people um, experimenting in those arenas. And, you know, a lot of times they're actually more nimble and able to experiment in those arenas because they're not attached to conventional jobs and careers. You know, like one of the hardest things to do when you're in a traditional design job is to keep upskilling, you know, like it is very hard to dedicate time to experimenting in programming language if you're stuck on a campaign for, you know, Pfizer or Procter and Gamble, it's really hard, you know? And so when you have less conventional paths, you have that room to do that. I feel like the unconventional path sometimes forces you to almost have to prove yourself or to make your voice heard. Because I know that, I mean, I got I got my GD and I went through the whole like education system afterwards, which I'm I'm glad that I did. There's there's still times where like that imposter syndrome kicks in of like I didn't I don't even have like a high school diploma. So I wonder, do you do you feel that way at all? I do, but not around the things that are uh, pertaining to the actual like academic education. Um, I think what people take for granted is the socialization that comes from going to like through a conventional path, right? You know, like the internship, the mentorship, the uh, going to college, going to finishing high school, you know, we take that a lot of those social, that social experience for granted, you know, 
Uh, and that's probably where I have the most imposter syndrome, you know, uh, and I think these things are when you when you're in a situation like let's say you go to like um, the AIGA uh, uh, annual award ceremony, right, it, it becomes very glaring or like uh, specialized arts education. They were always encouraged to be in a creative industry. Like the language they use, just the movements through the, the social space, it it's very clear, you know? And it takes a lot of confidence to not have access to those things and think, well, it's fine. I, I belong here. You know, there's a reason I was invited. But Because... Um, the other stuff, you can always learn the history of design. You can learn the language of designers. You can learn about the industries in, in and outs of the industry. But there's no book that says like, okay, these are the things designers joke about. These are the things that, you know, like matter to designers in their off time. You know, these are... These are the um, annoyances throughout their career that we all like, you know, that test your metal. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's no book about that. Yeah. You know, people aren't writing about that. That's a weird thing to write about. I remember when when I was in college, because growing up in I mean, just growing up in the edu education system, like I thought that in college to be a successful graphic designer, you had to know the history of design and you had to be an expert and, and master all of those things. <laughs> and, it, and it used to stress me out so much because I would I would get these design history books and they were so boring, so academic. And then it's not until I finished school that I just realized no one's talking about the history of anything ever. Like it doesn't come up in meetings. No one's really even talking about typography. It's just, this is what looks nice and we like it. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like if you grew up surrounded by professional designers, right? You know, they're more likely to talk about Nike than they are to about you know, uh, Paul Rand or, you know, I mean, it's just like, yeah, we respect that stuff. There's a certain reverence you're always going to have, but it's not a day-to-day -day thing, you know? So you drop out of high school, you get your GD, and then for a while you worked as a insecurity, which is another thing that I share in common with you, although I only did it maybe for less than a year. And it wasn't, and, and security is like, exaggerating because the title was security but it was really just you just stand around. like as a security <laughs> guard in museum like people are always shocked that like i was 16 and doing that but the reality is is like you just stand there and make sure people don't physically touch art you know and unless it's like you know they're you're not getting like bank robbers in a museum during the day you're not. It's like it's goofy people who are just like really like, oh, my God, is that real? And then their nose blinks the, <laughs> the painting or something, you know. So you're working at the museum and that leads to your from what I gathered from my research was that 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 was the that was your foot into into creativity, into art and into like a potential career in design. Yeah, I mean, like you got to understand, like when I was a kid. 
I was like a really far left kind of like communist type of, oh man, it was, it was very hardcore. And I saw art as a complete waste of time. I thought it was like an obstruction to the proletariat revolution. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, it was really something. Um, and so working at the museum, it was just like another job and, mm -hmm. you know, like, but I was bored. So I would read all the, the placards and all the all the different materials that they gave out. And I started talking to patrons about the pieces. And, you know, the director of education, Bill Byrne, overheard me. And he was just like, oh, man, do you want to be a docent instead? <laughs> the is a little better. And he was like, he was so insistent on, like, he started having me go to these uh, figure drawing classes. You know, they were they were free at the museum and they were geared towards kids. So I took them. Um, it turned out I was pretty decent at it, you know. Um, and then, like, he helped me apply for a summer course at Cooper Union that was, like, around educating kids about art. And, yeah, I mean... It, still didn't stick yet i was still like this is so dumb but at least i'm i have something to do in the summer <laughs> you know um and then you know i he had me apply to colleges and when the scholarship started rolling in i think that's when i really started taking it seriously because i didn't think i was going to college i was concurrently applying for the army you know, I was thinking, okay, you know, I just want a stable job. I mean, this is, this sucks. What I'm doing sucks, you know? And the idea that like, oh my God, I could go to this college, this place that's charging 40 grand a year for free because, you know, and this is how he explained it to me was that like the scholarships are bet because you are a walking advertisement for the school. You know, like if you are expected to pay full tuition, it's unlikely they the school itself believes that you will do something with the education, which is kind of, it's scary to think about, but it's true, you know? Every kid that gets a scholarship to a college is expected to do something with that education to further rep represent and enhance that reputation of that school, right? And so like the idea that multiple colleges wanted to give me money to do this is it, you know, it struck a chord in me. I was a little asshole in college though. So he, it, in hindsight, maybe he shouldn't have told me that because then I would, I would yell at kids in school like, dude, you're, what the fuck do you think you're gonna do after school? You can meet, like, cause at, at SAIC, it wasn't that hard to get at least a partial scholarship. And if you couldn't even get that, it was saying a lot because, um, you know, to be a professional artist after school, like not to just make art, but to sustain yourself by making art is incredibly competitive and whew, it really hurts the soul too. If President Charlene could have a conversation with Charlene then, what what would you what, what would you talk about what is there anything you would you would tell charlene then oh yeah just be kinder being a little shit is not like gonna win you any favors or make you a better 
person, creative, it doesn't really matter. And you're just so angry all the time and it keeps you from doing the things that you actually value. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, so learn to let go of things that make you angry and be kinder, you know? Yeah. And what do you, what do you think she would say back to you? <laughs> oh, fuck off. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> it would absolutely 100% say fuck off. <laughs> you don't know me. So you you mentioned that for for much of your career, for much of your, you know, professional life and for much of what, you, what you've been doing within design, a big something that's played a big role in that has been the generosity of others and people willing to to mentor and to you know, to to be there for you and to answer your questions and whatnot. So can you speak a little bit about about maybe some of those experiences and what they what they did for you? You know, it's an interesting thing because like if we go back a little bit to the the social aspect of education, right? Like, you know, that is a part that I you, you can't really fake having. You know, you can walk confidently through it and not have it, but you can't fake it, you know. Um and so that's where a lot of the mentors really come in because a lot of the mentors they've either walked the path that i've been on or they've had experiences that i don't have access to and that's it's really helpful you know just being in the watch shadowing someone who has had experiences you don't have is illuminating you will glean so much if you're just open to the novelty of other people's experiences. There are definitely a lot of things that overlap and you'll just be like, oh yeah, I've done that before. But if you look for the moments in someone else's experience that you're just like, oh yeah, that's totally new to me. You know, that's where a lot of the generosity can really be helpful for you. That's how you can grow as a person, you know, because the older you get, the smaller those moments are. But, you know, I think you would be pressed to find someone older who isn't constantly growing, who isn't saying that, who doesn't say that they're open to new experiences. At what point do you feel like you started to maybe have a little bit more, a bigger sense of your voice and who you were within the context of the the spaces that you were occupying. I think that's the thing about me and why I was such a little shit when I was younger is that I've never had a shortage of that. Okay. (laughs) You know, like, um, I'm, I'm neurodivergent and I feel like one of the things that's both a gift and a curse of it is that I'm not very shy about my voice. It is very rare for me to be apologetic about my opinions. It is even rare for me to stand back if I think something is wrong. I will just speak up. Um, And it's not always socially appropriate. It's sometimes socially necessary. But it's, you know, it's the kind of thing where, like, I think maybe maybe i was around i won't say like late like 26 or somewhere between 26 and 30 where i found that like it's not about being the voice it's not about being you can have conviction and still 
make people feel like they're being listened to. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of just yelling my opinion, it's really about like a conversation. And how do you how do you do that? It's a it's active listening. You know, like mm-hmm. you know something that I read once and it, it's it stuck with me was that there are four types of listening. Right? There's active support, passive support, um, n- active negative, passive negative. Right? So let's say you know I walk into a room my friends there and I tell them, Oh, I got a promotion at my job. You know, active support would be like, Oh my God, that's so awesome. Tell me about it. Blah, 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 blah. Right. Like very engaged wants to know more makes me feel like they care. Passive support would be just like, Oh, that's cool. You know, and moves on. Like they're not disparaging you, but they are not interested. Right like an active negative is just like it sounds it's like it would be like actively disparaging that news passive would be you know kind of like maybe a backhanded compliment or just like you know immediately changing the subject and you know that's that's something to think about like when we think about you know it doesn't even matter if it's a first date or job interview active listening makes a huge difference in people feeling heard a lot of times when people are angry you know and i'm not saying you never encounter people who are purely jerks but a lot of times we're angry as an expression of our anxieties being unmet especially Mm -hmm. in a professional atmosphere someone just doesn't trust you to get something done something Mm -hmm. doesn't someone is more concerned about the ramifications of a project failing or, you know, things like that. And yeah. so to actually listen and identify those things and then assuage someone of those things makes your ability to push your ideas further, it, it heightens it. You're mm-hmm. much more likely to be heard if you make sure other people feel supported and cared mm-hmm. for especially around their anxieties. You're, you're a huge advocate for accessibility and inclusion within the design process. And it's an, and it seems to be something that just runs through the thread of, of a lot of the work that you do. And I had a chance to, to, to listen to some of those talks. And I think when it comes to uh, accessibility, inclusion, it's, it's definitely been something that more and more companies are talking about but I'm always really skeptical about which of them are actually doing it from the heart as opposed to doing it from the lens of, you know, it's going to make us money and it's profitable. And these are the KPIs. So how do you advocate for maybe, maybe not advocate, but how do you see, how can designers be better advocates of, of things like DEI accessibility when the, when the within the design process and maybe even more so how how did you manage to to be to be an advocate and to 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 be a proponent for a lot of a lot of the things that you're passionate about today yeah this is something i've actually been thinking about a lot because you know as as especially as scientists kind of like uncover how certain learning disabilities work or other disabilities what especially like mental ones like how they impact you, you know, something I read was that with dyslexia, the reason why the words look all jumble is because we're trying to parse 
the letters into vis the visual representations of space, right? So like, for instance, a V, where, where our brain is reading it as the same shadows you might read like the uh, around a cube, right? And so that changes how the letter forms are interacting with our, our, with our processing. And so, you know, like one of the things I've always had really good handwriting. I've always advocated for minimal clean type. And it just, it, it finally hit me the other day in the shower that maybe I'm really great at that stuff because I'm dyslexic, you know? Um, one of the things that I've always been very good about is designing in bright, high dynamic colors. And, oh, maybe that's related to me being colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not completely colorblind. I'm partially colorblind. So when I see like terrible infographics where everything is just like 20% gradients, it's like very hard for me to parse. You know, so that's that, you know, like in a selfish way, that's how I got into it. Probably I even without being able to articulate the language, but, you know, like maybe I, I think it was because I just saw a lot of bad design. And I'm like, I can do this better. And all I really was doing was making it more usable for myself. And is there anything in particular about the design process or the work that that you're doing today that excites you the most like what what is it about design that maybe when you were just getting into it or maybe today what about it keeps you keeps you engaged is it the research is it the execution theory you know i think it's just how it's a facet in so many parts of my life you know like i think when i was younger i would have probably been more someone who says like hey you know design should consume you it's a lifestyle you know but in reality you know i think i'm more successful because i have a interesting life where design can influence the different parts of it you know it's a it's a nuanced distinction but i think it's important you know like right now one of the more exciting things i'm doing is i'm helping out this group called the chicago role players guild they're a really cool group that hosts uh, Dungeons and Dragons and other tabletop role-playing games for free. And their website is atrocious. It's just really bad. The they don't have a logo. So I was like, look, man, I I'm using your website and I hate it. Can you like let me make some changes for you? Mm -hmm. They're like, oh my God, we would love it. <laughs> so, so you know, I had them sign up for Squarespace. I'm like doing little experimentations on logos and stuff. And it's just, you know, this is something easy to do. I tell, I told them, you know, I can only commit 10 hours uh, a week to this and I'm not going to charge you, but we are going to be very strict about the 10 hours a week. And I am yeah. going to teach you how to do a lot of this stuff on your own. Like, that's why Squarespace, right? Because I I'm not gonna be your fucking webmaster. You 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 know, no one wants me to do that. Uh <laughs> you know, and once I give you the logo files and other you know, branding guideline, you're gonna do all this stuff on your own. You know? 
Um, and they're they're just really pumped about it. And it's just like something where I can coach them. I'm not get, just, you know, selling them assets. I'm coaching them on how design works a little bit. You know, like I'm when I was just showing them the the original site audit I did for them. And then here's the recommended, you know, site architecture. I was explaining to them why the why I changed the language, why we're structuring certain things this way, why we're adding other things here. And they're just like, it's clicking, you know? Because like once you can relate it back to someone's personal experience as they move through this world, design's pretty easy to grasp. You know, it's not about, oh, what's super cool looking. It's really about like, oh, that's how it would function for me, you know, like you don't just do a minimalist logo because you hate details. You do it because a lot of times, oh, I have to reproduce this thing as two millimeters on a metal bottle. I need to make sure this works on a phone app. I need to make sure it works on a billboard. There are so many considerations, you know, when you're mocking up logos, you are testing all those things out. You can't just simply say like, you know, go into Illustrator, set some text and go, oh yeah, this is beautiful, perfect, chef's kiss. That's not how it works. When you were growing up, when you were younger, um, let's say before, before I, I asked a, a, pre, a previous guest about life before graphic design. And for you, before you knew that design was um, a, a thing, were there any experiences or any media that really captured your interests? Um, writing. I writing? wanted to be a writer. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that was definitely my version of it. And, you know, and that relates back to my political views because it's like, you think like the debates and the being an orator, those are things that will get you further down a political path or like, you know, my mom was still convinced I can become a lawyer if I wanted to. And it's just like, no, mom, I don't want to hate myself. <laughs> I think I would hate myself if I became a lawyer. Um, but yeah, that was it. I didn't, I really wasn't a visual person because like, you know, in hindsight, I think about it a lot of that stuff wasn't geared to be consumable by someone like me, you know, whether, whether it's access, you know, like museums and an arts education get expensive, right. Art appreciation itself is an expensive hobby or it can be. Um, and, you know, it's just like, is this stuff even like easy to read for me? Is this stuff even easy to like discern the details for me? You know, like, I don't get it. <laughs> I think it's expecting a lot for someone without any access to art culture to like understand the point of a Mondrian or Pollock. But I mean, were you were you listening to like what, what were you listening to? Were you watching anything? Was there any commercial content that you were perhaps moved by? Not really. I Not mean, really. you know, like I was even the PC person up until I'm still a PC person because I like the idea of being able to make your own computer. Like I didn't like the idea of like this closed ecosystem. You know, I, I still have never bought myself a Mac product. <laughs> uh, all my computers at home for personal purchase have been PCs and I've usually built them myself. Um, you know, like I, 
I am not your traditional consumer of design products. You know, like I build my own furniture. Um, all the tax taxidermy has become pretty popular with designers. I I taxiderm my own animals. Can you talk about that? <laughs> I've never met anyone that that has personal taxidermy experience. I mean that. So that started in college, right? Um, we had a scientific illustration class that was like part of the field museum. Like you could go to the field museum and check out specimens and draw them. And, you know, it was just a huge privilege. I loved it so much. Um, and, you know, I would get, get talking to the people who worked the collections and I started learning little bits here and there about taxidermy. Um, they have an entire team there just dedicated to creating mounts, you know, um, some of my friends graduated from Northeastern and actually they got jobs there doing just that. But on, on the way to the train from the Columbus building of SAIC, you know, they, there's this part that's attached to the museum that's just all windows. Now, in the fall, when it's migratory season, uh, birds are really prone to hitting the windows. They even used to have like these giant owl stickers up on the windows to prevent it, but it didn't really work. And I just started collecting all the dead birds, you know, and I started experimenting at home. It's really just removing the skin. Um, it's, there's a lot of weird chemical things they call, like if you, when you, when you, it's just borax. So the same chemical you can get for laundry at jewel, right? When you put your mm -hmm. specimen in there to dry it out, it's called soaking the skin in poison, which is very ominous sounding, but it's, that's going to be a <laughs> quote for this, for this episode, <laughs> soaking the skin in poison, Charlene King. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's very meticulous. It's something I can do. Um, it's not as hard as people would think. Uh, I could show, I mean, you know, this is a audio thing, so it, it won't really help if I show you, but I'm working right now on a uh, jackalope for a friend and it's kind of a chimera too. It's a brown and black rabbit, two, two rabbits that I've combined into a jackalope. It's very fun. It's just, I mean, it's just, you know, so I get the skins from Etsy um, and then I get the full, I make the forms myself. Um, some people buy forms, but I use a combination of like air dry clay and um, styrofoam to make my forms. Uh, you can also, because they're, so because of the migratory bird law in the US, you can't really just go out and hunt birds anymore. You know, you have to collect them. <laughs> So in the fall, I'll just walk around Chicago looking for dead birds on easements. And, you know, like right now I got a freezer full of dead birds. Man, I sound like a serial killer. <laughs> no, I think I think I think that's interesting. And I and I and I love the just the, uh, the how that intersects with 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 design, because that's essentially what it is. I, I feel like it's a, a, a design. Yeah, project, I definitely so. think like being a designer that's... has made me a better taxidermist. <laughs> Because you just you there's certain details you look for. Like if you go to Etsy, there's no shortage of people doing taxidermy now. But you know, 
and this is why a lot of taxidermists refuse to do pets it's very difficult to take something dead and capture the energy of when it's alive right like a lot of taxidermists will 100% refuse to do pets because you have a very clear idea of what your pet looks like in your mind what taxidermists do don't necessarily make it look like that it looks like an animal and it we try to give it some motion but it's often not going to it's not going to feel the same you know like i don't know what your dog looked like in real life um and so like as i fill up its skin with you know things like wood stuffing <laughs> it's it's going to feel off you know eyes are always an interesting thing you know like it's one thing when it's a deer and you can just get a glass eye pop it in it's another thing when it's a dog you've been hanging out with for like 15 years and the eye looks off interesting well yeah we'd love to see some pictures <laughs> at some point because really interested <laughs> oh man yeah so you and i we were exchanging emails before before this episode and and one of the things that um we are potentially discussing for for this episode was to talk about logo redesigns and sort of like the 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 state of of design today and and maybe the discourse that the internet is uh what people are talking about i think we don't need to talk about ai there's plenty of ai talk and 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 you were on an ai panel with us but when you think about the state of design today what's your assessment of design as it as it stands today what do you like about it what don't you like about it so we're going to talk about AI for a little bit because I think it's going to really impact how our aesthetics change, right? Um, right now, we're at a, a certain climax of minimalism, and a lot of it has to do with the vast array of media we have to prepare designs for, right? You know, like a logo has to work on a billboard and in an app. It, those are two very, very different spectrums, you know, um, and it has to look good in pixels, even with things like retina display and, you know, high density, like, you know, high def things, there's still a finite amount of pixelization that will occur. And so you can't, there's certain, you can't do certain rounded edges without seeing things, you know, um, that's why you'll see a lot more angular minimalism too on top of that, right? Um, and then you just have like AI. AI, what AI is going to do is it's going to kind of kind of take a lot of the generic things that we believe designers are too lazy to produce well, um, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to put that access right into the hands of a lot of customers. And anyone who's ever spoken to a client about what they want can tell you that's not going to go well. <laughs> you, people have a really hard time expressing what it is they want. And anyone who jumps into mid-journey or uh, any other prompt generator can tell you that like people are bad at writing. People do not know what to tell you what they want. And even, you know, as sophisticated as those apps are now, it's still kind of clumsy, you know. So all that to say, right now, design is going to become a very generic age of average. And I think the next, what I'm excited to see is what that next stage is. Because I think, 
I think we're going to have a reversion to crazy gradients and grungy shit, and it's going to be... People are going to go nuts. At some point, people are going to go fucking nuts. And the thing is, now we have the technology, too, to make those dreams realize. They may not look good at every scale, but they're possible. You know, like I remember when we did websites and you wanted crazy backgrounds, it was tough. You know, you didn't want to make someone slog through a one megabyte background image because that would take hours to load. Now that's not an issue. So you can do some weird, wacky stuff. Yeah, I was talking with a friend about how when we look when we look back in time. So like, let's say we look back into like the early 90s or early 2000s like there's a very clear visual timestamp, and and a lot of what i see a lot happening on social media is that people people tend to have like a sense of nostalgia for the past oh absolutely that's why i have an 89 civic and i wonder if let's say 20 years from now when i see ai i i see it poorly do hands hands and like certain facial features and I think it's only a matter of time before it, like, it's just going to get really good at doing, doing those type of things. So I'm curious if in the future people are going to like try to reverse engineer and maybe do those like terrible hands as like, hey, this is like a, an ode to when Midjourney was. Able. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, like we can see it in illustrations, you know, like, you know, the more Pixar and other large studios produce these high fidelity 3d animation type of works right the more the rest of us started reverting back to things like you know like stylized 2d animation right your triplets of belleville or uh steven universe it doesn't really matter like because we just want to what we're gravitating towards is a good looking story time you know and the storytelling doesn't require technology just the animation part you know um one of the cooler things i'm seeing is so procreate is going to do a drag and drop style of ai fueled animation in their next app and it looks so awesome like because to me for a lot of what makes animators very different than other types of artists is that they they are about storytelling in a way that you don't have to worry about in a static image and sometimes the technological barriers get in the way of that storytelling. You know, like it takes a lot to draw, you know, 30 seconds of a story. But if AI can help you do that, you know, and we care less about the fidelity because the lower fidelity is going to become very nostalgic for us soon. That's going to be really awesome to see. But yeah, I think we're we're going to see people who throw back to like weird like six-armed people as nostalgic. I I that's exciting. I I cannot wait for that to happen. Like I mean, look at David Carson. Like yeah. I I don't know how many people remember David Carson, but his whole thing was like in the era of like Swiss cleanly minimalism. He was like, "Fuck that. Let's just like collage weird shit together." <laughs> And and you recently had you had some uh, some art at an exhibition not too long ago. Can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe outside of work, you're you're doing your taxidermy, you're doing what website redesigns, 
you're doing art now. What are there, what, what other things are you, are you up to lately? So something I've been doing is now at 8 PM, I turn off, like I put down my phone, no more social media, right? I'll plug it in and I'll turn on the ringer, right? So if someone calls me or texts me, I can check that, but I largely ignore my phone after 8 PM. Um, and I've switched it out with a traditional alarm clock in my bedroom. Nice. So I can play music, you know, like I have my iPad set up to play music in the bedroom. But if, you know, I just use my alarm clock, it's it's the kind with the low bells and goes, ding, you know, it really wakes you up because it sounds horrible. It's so horrible, the noise it makes. <laughs> but yeah, like. That's given me four hours a night of mental space, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so now I'm screen printing. I'm, I'm reading a lot. I'm a, for, I, I think people are surprised by this because I, I have pretty bad dyslexia, but I read like 1800 words a minute, you know? Um, fun fact, the technique you learn as a dyslexic to read better is actually the same technique they charge uh they charge money for to teach normal people how to speed read. Is it reading like the first only reading the first parts of every word or what what's the technique? It's that's part of it, you know, but you you learn to scan in blocks, okay. right? Um so for me, like I'll I'll do like multiple pass throughs. Mm -hmm. I'll scan really quick, scan really quick, scan really quick and then like you know I've absorbed most of the page. Okay. So like, yeah. And then I'll just punch through it. So for, for a minute there, I was reading like two or three books a night. I've made my good reads. I've read, I think 56 or 57 books this year, mostly in the past two months. <laughs> and what, what's, what, what do you like reading? What's your genre? Uh, I oscillate between things. Uh, I like a lot of literary fiction. Um, then I like goofy science fiction. <laughs> and uh, then I read a lot of nonfiction. And usually in the nonfiction, it's stuff like um, food history or uh, science of specific animals. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, a lot of memoirs and biographies i i just read this one called all the president's men and it was about the watergate scandal and like mm -hmm. you know the the journalists behind it it's a it's a pretty good book um right now i'm i just finished up this uh i think it was called i hide my exoskeletons but it's about a woman in the future or some dystopian scenario where like you know, we, instead of sending people to prison, we give them an extra shadow. An extra and shadow. So, <laughs> yeah. They're called shadesters. And, you know, they go through life with this extra shadow and it talks about the stigma and what that means. And, you know, like her child was born with an extra shadow because the mom died during okay. birth. And it's just like this horrible thing. And it's just like, wow. But is this like a, like a Jungian shadow? Like a. No, it's a physical shadow. You can see. You had some art on display not too long ago. Or is there more, more, more of that happening in the future? I'm going to try. I mean, I don't know. Cause like for me, the goal isn't to actually like 
you know, make art that sustains me. The goal now is to make art that's interesting to me and share it with other people who might find it interesting. <laughs> you know, like one of the things that I don't get to do a lot in my day job is drawing. You know, like sometimes I do, but most of the time I don't. And it's been very nice for me to like get back into it. You know, like I, I really like drawing faces um because it's really it's really cool to me that like just like a quarter inch of a line can change someone's expression from like sarcastic smirk to genuine love you know and it's it's i'm sticking i'm i'm as far as this series is concerned i'm sticking to just pure black and white no shading nothing like that um because i want to see where i can go visually with just that you know ever since i learned the thing about dyslexic people uh not being able to parse letter forms because your brain is trying to make it into space mm -hmm. definitions um that's what i've been doing i'm just so excited to see what i can do with faces just with black and white so we're almost at time but i want to ask you just Maybe one, one last question. When it comes to the Chicago design community, which which you've participated in, I mean, I, I remember before I, I ever spoke with you, like I, I just remember seeing you everywhere all the time. Uh -huh. um, and I, 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 I'm always interested in, as a Chicago Graphic Design Club, like what we want to know is what does Chicago need more of and what can we do to, to make the Chicago design community better? And yeah, so I want to ask you that. Well, uh, I think you all are doing a great job in fulfilling a, a void in Chicago's design scene because what people really want is a sense of community and a, a, not guardrail but like we want we want the concept that was in bill withers lean on me so you know like the idea that if i fall someone can help me or i can what i've learned can prevent someone else's like downfall like it's it's really you know we are a very social species and you know, that a lot of times we take for granted, especially with the easy access of social media, you know, I think it creates a false, it's called, the phenomenon is called parasocial, you know, like where you feel a false connection through media, but it's, it's not the same thing as in-person stuff, you know, the conversations we have in person, even if, you know, you're just there to listen to someone talk is very different than, you know, consuming it through social media or on Netflix or it doesn't really matter. There's, there's a human connection that's we need, you know, and it doesn't have to get much more complicated than that. I think a lot of, especially organizations as they get bigger, overthink it, but people just want to connect. A lot of designers work in isolation, you know, teams are small and even on those teams, let's say you do have a big design team, even then, you are still isolated in your work. You know, like when I was at Morningstar, we had over a hundred different designers, but I only on a day-to-day -day worked with one other, if even that. 
I can't imagine what it's like at a smaller company. Well, I mean, I can because I've done it. <laughs> like, it's tough. And when it comes to your, what I would consider, or maybe how you were describing it, this rebellious attitude that 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 you once have and whether you still have it or not, how do you, how does that exist within like this very corporate setting, like a Morningstar, like a Salesforce? I work in consulting and I, uh, and it's taken me a few years to, to get comfortable, to get comfortable not, I don't want to say like being myself, but to get comfortable on knowing the boundaries of how far I could push things. I mean, this is the thing, like, cause you know, it's hard for me to give advice on that because everyone, only, only the individual can assess what the situation is. There's a lot of dangerous advice that's floating around that can't be applied. We want to believe it's evergreen and universal, but it's not right. But I will say this, uh, I, I've, I've always been a person of ask forgiveness, not permission. Um, and one of the things that my hiring manager at Salesforce told me that's, that made a lot of sense at the time was that, you know, don't be the designer we have, be the designer we hired for, <laughs> you know, because often if you're being hired, right, you're being hired to fill some kind of hole. It could be situational, like, you know, like, oh, our pro our, uh, our in-house letterer quit. Please make more letters for us. But a lot of times it's also like, you know, we're growing and we need to expand and we don't quite, we're, we're having a lot of pains doing that. Can you add some leadership to our team or support our team? But, you know, when you look at the, the goals of a business, right? You don't want to just fit what they're doing now. You want to anticipate just a little bit out front what they will want from your team. You know, like it's very rare that if you solve a problem for today, that it's 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 what the future. That's all that's gonna be. You, know, you need a. It's it's really easy to say that you need to anticipate things, but true. I, I think about it as like just like speculating or forecasting like like you know if you're a designer and you're talking to other designers on your team let's say you have a 20 person team and you just talk with each one of those people for half an hour for a month right that's like that's just one month you got to talk to everyone that's still more than i promise you a lot of the man the leadership right and so you can gain a perspective on what is making the design team work or what's failing them. And you can start looking at ways to improve it within your organization. Now you don't have to be a manager to start improving things. I think that's what a lot of people mistake is that in order to, to affect changes, you must be, you must have some organizational power and that's just not true. You, you have to have power, but not necessarily a title. So pretty much don't ask for permission. Just, just go do it. I can it. do it. And, you know, this is where I think it, you are more likely to succeed is always be asking feedback, you know, not necessarily from the people in power, but from the people it would affect, you know, like, so if you have an idea for how to improve the design org, 
right? Talk to the other designers like, hey, I have this idea. What do you, what do you think? Do you think if we tried this, it would work? You know, that will get you further than organization, like talking to your manager, because you know what? The manager does not fucking know or they would have done it. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was a great conversation. It flew by, but definitely uh, looking forward to staying in touch and uh, seeing, seeing just keeping up with all that you're doing. And uh, and hopefully we could do another collaboration or you could participate in something else in the coming year. So thank you for, thank you for everything. All right. Cool. I'll talk to you later, Christian. Chatting with you. Bye. As always, thank you for sticking around until the end. I really appreciate it. And I have some news. The Chicago Graphic Design Club is going to be launching its first publication called Faculty, which is going to be a publication about all things Chicago graphic design. So head on over to our website and you will see a link there that will take you to our shop and you will be able to find a copy there. It's available for pre-order right now. Shipments scheduled to occur in early February. So pick up a copy and once again, thank you so much. Talk to you soon.